0: was a dark and stormy night. At least it is at the moment in Auckland, New Zealand. So if you're hearing any sound leaking through, that's actually the rain. Hello, I'm Brett Dillon and this is The Movie Chronicles. This episode finds us in Land, not the land of pomegranates, but the prisoners of Mother England. Roald Dahl adaptions were doing big business in 1996, at least in the USA. Let me introduce you to author Roald Dahl. Dahl was born on September the 13th, 1916 in Cardiff, Wales, and he died in 1990. Roald was named after the Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen. His parents were Norwegian and had immigrated to the UK. His father and sister died in 1920. His father, as an entrepreneur in the interim, had amassed a fortune. I mention this because his mother had the option to move the family back to Norway and chose, by virtue of her financial independence, not to. In 1924, Roald became involved in the Great Mouse Plot. This involved pranking the mean and loathsome Mrs. Pratchett, then local lolly merchant. She was later to morph into Mrs. Trunchbull in Matilda. In 1929, Roald was sent to Repton School in Derbyshire. It was an atmosphere of ritual cruelty and status domination that led Roald to have doubts about religion and even God. In 1934, education complete, he joined the Shell Petroleum Company and served in Kenya and Tanzania in Africa. In mid-1939, with war looming in the distance, the British decided it might be a good idea to round up all the Germans living in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. Roald was commissioned as a lieutenant of the King's African Rifles and the herding began, but not for long for Roald. He travelled 970 kilometres to Nairobi to volunteer for the RAF. Of the 16 men who went to flight training with him, only three survived the war. Roald was a little surprised to find that there would be no combat training. I'm guessing the surprise wore off when he was assigned to a squad of obsolete aircraft. The crew were ordered to Mersa Matra, Egypt. Roald crashed his plane, fractured his skull, smashed his nose, and was temporarily blind. The inquiry found he had been sent to the wrong location and ran out of fuel. Roald wasn't declared fit to fly again until 1941. These were desperate times, and in April took part in the Battle of Athens. After this, he began to have blackouts and headaches, He was invalided back to Britain, where he talked his way into the position of assistant air attaché at the British Embassy, Washington, D.C., USA. Dahl found that this was a most ungodly, unimportant job. The importance of this period is that here he met publisher Charles E. Marsh and writer C.S. Forrester, who had been commissioned to write an article about Rowald's war service he also bonded with spymaster Ian Fleming. In 1946, Roald was invalided out of the service. Post-war, getting married and having children had a profound effect upon Roald. His son Theo was struck by a taxi in 1960 and developed hydrocephalus. Roald developed the WDT valve that is used to alleviate this condition. In 1962, his daughter Olivia died from measles encephalitis, a condition the anti-vaccination movement never mentioned. Roald threw his efforts into the child immunization program. The decade of the 60s wasn't through with them yet. In 1965, his wife suffered from three cerebral aneurysms. I'll now backtrack a little to 1942, long before all this drama occurred. Roald published his first work in 1942. This was the piece originally commissioned for C.S. Forrester to write. C.S. found Dahl enough of a raconteur that he let Roald tell the story in his own words. In 1943, Roald published his first children's story, Gremlins, and this was commissioned by Disney, who have yet to turn it into a film. Roald's reputation rests, like a schizophrenic pigeon, upon two branches – his whimsical children's books, and, to quote Roald, his Tales of the Unexpected – adult works that are grim fairy tales. For a brief period in the 60s, Roald was also adapting Ian Fleming's works to the big screen. He did start to write a screenplay for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, but was removed from the project for failing to meet script deadlines. The film was released as Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and Roald disowned it. He refused to allow any more adaptations of his property during his lifetime. History was nobody's fool on. February the 9th. The IRA ended its ceasefire by bombing the Canary Wharf district in London, England, killing two people. March the 13th. Thomas Hamilton walked into the Dunblane Primary School in Scotland and murdered 16 pupils and one teacher before committing suicide. In the UK, this is called a massacre. In the US, it is called Normal. In New Zealand, it is called cowardice. June the 15th. The IRA bombed the city centre of Manchester, England, injuring 200 people and furthering their cause, if the cause is making sure England never leaves Northern Ireland. June the 29th. Rock group The Who headlined the Prince's Trust Concert in Hyde Park, London. This is their first performance in seven years. August 28th. The Prince and Princess of Wales divorced. And now. Holding the concept of a fruit salad firmly in mind, I present to you our first film of this episode. James and the Giant Peach Director, Henry Selick, Script, Carrie Kirkpatrick, Jonathan Roberts and Steve Bloom Director of Photography, Peter Kozadzczyk and Hiro Narita Editor, Stan Webb Music, Randy Newman Actors. Paul Terry, Simon Callow, Richard Dreyfus, Jane Leaves, Joanna Lumley, Miriam Mogollis, Peter Poffelswaite, Susan Saradin, and David Thulis. James mixes live action with stop-motion animation. Originally, it was intended to be all animation, until the cost arrived on the desktop of the Disney executives. Some sacrifices had to be made. The greatest sacrifice being how to transition from live-action to animation. You'll notice, for instance, that actor Paul Terry has a cut on his face that doesn't transition onto his animated form. The film, like the novel, is surprisingly dark. James's parents are gobbled by a rhinoceros, making him an orphan, which is a standard introduction to a character in children's literature. This allows the hero more freedom of action. As the story develops, so does the rhinoceros. It is an existential threat symbolizing childhood fears. The film, in particular, recounts how James faces and overcomes these fears. James lives with his abusive aunts until an itinerant puts magic into his life. The crocodile tongues he lets loose cause a peach tree to grow a giant peach. James crawls inside and escapes his aunts, accompanied by a giant spider, a centipede, a cricket, and a ladybug. Hitching seagulls to the peach, they fly away from a mechanical shark, get lost, and battle skeletons before they end up spiked atop the Empire State Building in New York City. This is a world of fantastical adventure. It is also a world where the design elements threaten to swamp the film. It introduces the elements of nightmare into the narrative. We only return to some kind of normalcy when the peach lands in New York City and The illegal immigrants are embraced by the city. For my taste, I preferred the live-action sequences. This is where the surrealist design elements make the most sense. Director Henry Selick was born on November thirtieth, 1952, in Glen Ridge, New Jersey, USA. Henry studied science at Rutgers University, New Brunswick, USA, and art at Syracuse University, New York and then he moved to England to study art at the Central St. Martin's College of Art and Design in London. Along the way, he became interested in animation as a vocation and enrolled at the California Institute of the Arts. His first job was as an in-betweener at Disney Studios. Here he met fellow directors-to-be Brad Bird and Tim Burton, and Disney legend Eric Larson. Tim Burton produced Henry's first directorial attempts, 1993's The Nightmare Before Christmas and 1996's James and the Giant Peach. Since then, Henry has kept busy. He prefers stop-motion animation, which is at best a long, painstaking experience. Composer Randy Newman was born on November the 28th, 1943, in Los Angeles, California, USA. Randy has three uncles who were Hollywood composers, Alfred, Lionel, and Emil, which is a good beginning for a musician. He studied music at the University of California, but dropped out, completing the degree in 2021. He became a professional songwriter at the age of 17. This led to a happy collaboration in the mid-1960s with the band Harper's Bazaar, who were happy to perform his compositions after he'd composed them, of course. In 1961, Randy began to record his own material for himself and let others cover his material. He noted, Stay away from drugs. They're not worth it. I've tried, but there's none of them that's worth it. Randy's earliest scoring work was for TV. This began in 1962. His success writing pop songs dragged him into writing songs for Teen Movies. He didn't write a complete film score until 1971's Cold Turkey. Today, is best known for his work on Pixar Disney movies. Of this phase of his career, he said, I do movies because I love writing for orchestra, though it scares me, and the money is good. I can't make a living doing just albums. Times are too difficult for geriatric artists. He summed up his oeuvre as, My music has a high irritation factor. But I prefer eccentricity to the bland. Births were a constant in the theory of life. On January the third, Florence Pugh, the British actor. June the first, Tom Holland, the British actor. June the twenty-fourth, Harris Dickinson. The British writer, director, and actor. September the 17th. ala Purnell, the British actor. And now, for something completely similar. The dark and scary, Matilda. Director and actor, Danny DeVito. Script, Nicholas Kazan and Robin Swicord. Director of Photography, Stefan Kazapsky Editor, Lindsay Klingman and Brent White. Music, David Newman. Actors, Mara Wilson, Rhea Perlman, Ember Davids, Sam Ferris and Paul Rubens. Danny DeVito directs Matilda with the eye of a comedian and a nose for steering the script towards the darker elements of the Dahl story. That is at heart, a story about child abuse. He doesn't even try to avoid the pitfall Dahl fell into with his deus ex machina finale. Matilda Wormwood has parents who are at their best when they're absent from her life. She is a six-year-old child genius whom we first meet as she schemes to get her parents to put her in the school. This involves playing pranks on her father, which can be read as a call back to Home Alone 1990 in terms of slapstick violence and over-the-top cruelty. In essence, Matilda starts a war with her parents to get her own way. Matilda is not a lovely child. One lucky day, Harry Wormwood sells a car to Mrs. Trunchbull, the principal of Cruncham Hall Elementary School a successor to Charles Dickens' Do the Boys Hall. This is the school Harry chooses, with very little thought, for his daughter. Miss Trunchbull is a tyrant. Her disciplinary measures include twirling a student around by her pigtails, throwing students out of first-floor windows, and locking them into an Iron Maiden-like cupboard. Matilda Due to her advanced reading is outraged at the justice of it all and begins to organize a student protest movement. Two subplots now intervene. Matilda learns her father is under investigation by the FBI due to his dodgy deals. Miss Jennifer Honey, Matilda's favorite teacher, tells her own tragic tale. Miss Honey's mother died when she was two, and her father invited his wife's stepsister, Miss Trunchbull, into the home. Three years later, her father committed suicide, and Miss Honey believes he was murdered, and Miss Trunchbull came into the possession of everything, throwing Miss Honey out of house and home. At this point, the story takes a wrong turn. Matilda has telekinetic powers and uses these to resolve all the plot elements. It was a fraught production for Pam Ferris, who plays Miss Trenchball and involved multiple trips to the hospital from onset injuries. Critics were sympathetic to the film, although I suspect this was because this played into the US propensity to love cruelty in all its forms. Roger Ebert nailed it when he said, Trunchbull is the kind of villainous children can enjoy because she is too ridiculous to be taken seriously and yet really is mean and evil. Director-actor Danny DeVito was born on November 17th, 1944 in Neptune Township, New Jersey, USA. Danny started work as a hairstylist in his sister's beauty salon. Searching for professional makeup instruction, he came upon the American Academy of Dramatic Arts and enrolled. He graduated in 1966. Danny made his film debut in 1970, but being short of stature, nobody noticed him until 1975's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. What he did keep making film appearances, his work on TV's Taxi, 1978-83, kept him out of the pictures. His friendship with Jack Nicholson, Terms of Endearment, 1983, and Michael Douglas, Romancing the Stone, 1984, brought him back into the pictures. Danny's directorial debut was in 1973, but he was only making shorts or TV episodes until 1987's Throw Mama from the Train. He said, Most of us are insecure, and the other portion are assholes. So, you can be insecure, so long as you're not an asshole. Scriptwriters Nicholas Kazan and Robin Swicord are a team. Nicholas was born on September the 15th, 1945, in New York City, New York, USA, and is the son of director Alia Kazan. Robin was born on October the 23rd, 1952, in Columbia, South Carolina, USA. Nicholas said... If we refuse to make destructive changes, why are we considered difficult rather than principled and passionate? Why are we not considered experts, both in general and, most especially, in the distinct universe of the script we have just written? Robin said, Adapting is always an interpretive work. Some parts are original, but always in service and collaboration with the author. Deaths were a downer on… February 14th Eva Hart, the British Titanic survivor, born 1905 April 20th Christopher Robin Milne, author and bookseller, born 1920. Oh, poo! He's famous for something else, but I forgot. Something about the changing of the guards at Buckingham Palace? Eh, never mind. May the 20th. John Pertwee, the only person on this list I ever met. British actor, born 1919. May the 24th. John Abbott, the British actor born 1905. June the 3rd, Peter Glenville, the British director, born 1913. Next episode, I'll take you to 2016, and for some as yet unknown reason, the Brits got all nostalgic this year. For more Movie Chronicles goodness, Check out the Movie Chronicles ebook series. Don't forget to join the Buzzsprout and Patreon pod people to force more P word alliterations out of me for these outros. Although, if you pay me enough, I'll stop. Yes, enough demand, and I'll pee them out. Until we meet again, Cheerio.